Welcome to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm Dave Rome and have a deep dive episode for you this week. Your regular host, James Wong, currently has his hands full testing bikes for the next field test. And so with him away, I thought I'd take the chance to dive deep down a rabbit hole of personal interest. And no, it's not tools. It's time to go full nerd on the murky waters of chain lube testing. It seems barely a week goes by between a new chain lube being released claiming to be the next frontier. Some claim to be the fastest. Others claim to be the most durable. Maybe they are said to be the cleanest. And others are simply claiming they're the best at everything all the time, even cleaning your chain, pedaling your bike for you, and cooking dinner. The amount of mixed information in this space is staggering, and it's undoubtedly one of the more confusing product areas for consumers. But why does it even matter? Surely all chain lubes are roughly similar? Well, with previous testing done by the formerly independent Friction Facts Lab, we learned that there can be enormous frictional loss differences in different chain lubes. One or two watt losses with each pedal stroke may not matter to everyone, but those figures only amplify with your effort. And once grit or wear sets in, then the losses only continue to climb. More recently, Zero Friction Cycling in Australia started using chain wear as an indicator for the effectiveness of chain lubes in real-world conditions. Zero Friction Cycling's controlled testing has revealed some mind-boggling differences in chain lubes, with some leading to wholly worn drivetrains in as little as 2,000 kilometers, while others allow you to get as much as 20,000 kilometers from a single chain with no visible wear on the cogs. And if you're running the latest and greatest parts, then that's an enormous difference to running costs. Interestingly, Zero Friction Cycling also found that lubes that reduce chain wear almost always directly correlate to the known high efficiency lubes. In other words, wear is friction and friction is wear. Reduce the one and you'll almost always reduce the other. However, when it comes to the exposed nature of a bicycle chain, this topic just gets that little more complicated. No doubt chain lube selection matters a great deal and it's a topic I'm extremely passionate about. And so it pains me when I see so much misinformation floating about. And that's what this episode looks to cover. How did we get here? What are the pitfalls and tests to be aware of? Who can you trust? And is there hope for one day having an agreed upon industry test standard? And that brings me to the guests on today's deep dive episode. Well, I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, yeah, hi. So it's, um, I'm Adam Karen, uh, the founder of Zero Friction Cycling. And so Zero Friction Cycling is um, pretty well the, the world's, um, I guess, sort of most referenced independent uh, bicycle chain lubricant test facility. And so I do a lot of testing for manufacturers looking to uh, get independent test data for their lubricants performance. And I also uh, use that data plus a lot of testing under my own volition so that uh, the retail side of Zero Friction Cycling knows what products to stock and what products to avoid. And I'm Jason Smith, um, CTO of Ceramic Speed Driven Technologies, but maybe more importantly was the founder of Friction Facts, which was the world's first independent bicycle efficiency testing lab uh, prior to be acquired uh, by Ceramic Speed. So uh, we've done a lot of efficiency testing, uh, invented a lot of equipment over the years. Thanks for both coming on today. So we've got a bit of a juicy topic here, which is uh, the world of chain lube testing. And uh, yeah, I guess what I wanted to get you guys on for is when you look at the world of, uh, of chain lubes at the moment, it sort of feels like it's almost every week that another company comes out with a claim that they have the fastest or the most efficient or 
the best wearing or the cleanest running chain lube. And it seems to be a bit of a mess as to who you can believe and when perhaps claims are a little too good to be true. So, yeah, I guess that brings us to why we're here. Uh, we've got Jason Smith, who, dare I say, is the godfather of chain lube testing, uh, invented a lot of uh, principles in the space. So I guess that's... Uh, but before we get to that, I guess I wanted to just get an overview of like the, the mechanics of a chain and what makes a good chain lube. Uh, who can tell me about sort of, I guess, the, the key characteristics that make up a good chain lube? I'll go ahead and dive in from an efficiency standpoint, and maybe, Adam, uh, you can go over into uh, the wear and, and the grit. Um, essentially, a good chain lube, let's call it something that's fast, something that's highly efficient when it's on a bicycle drivetrain. Uh, and that's directly measured by the uh, drivetrain test efficiency equipment. Um, what we've found uh, through the years of testing is that typically a dry lube with the proper characteristics is one of the faster lubricants. Um, when it comes to liquid lubricants, uh, there's things, and we might dive into this a little bit further, such as stiction and, and viscous drag, and I don't want to steal Adam's thunder, but uh, the attraction of, of grit and, and things like that. So step back and in one sentence, it's from a friction facts, ceramic speed, our test lab point of view, it's something that's, that's very fast and efficient when it first goes on. Adam, I'll let you roll into what happens after it goes on um, when you're out on a ride. Yeah, so, so um, I think probably important for me to uh, just preface as well that uh, I, I really started zero friction cycling, I guess, off the, off the back of um, where we lost friction facts as that independent testing resource. And, uh, and I felt that, you know, quite passionately, the world really did need an independent bicycle chain lubricant test resource simply because of the importance that uh, chain lubricants do have, not only for, you know, what savings for races, but um, really the, the, the biggest one is that um, components part wear for, you know, the majority of cyclists that are just out there, you know, commuting and recreationally cycling for fitness. So, and the, the cost to run um, differences between the top lubricants and just your sort of average or poor lubricants is quite massive because the, you know, what happens when a cyclist is out there riding is quite different to what happens in, say, an efficiency test lab. And so that's why the zero friction cycling testing is, is it's quite different. So it is wear correlation based. And my testing sort of picks up on, um, so from what happens right from the gun. So does a lubricant have any initial penetration issues, which wouldn't be necessarily picked up in an efficiency test where the goal is to test precisely how fast that lubricant, uh, lubricant is. So the lubricant is typically uh, applied immersively as opposed to applied as per the manufacturer instructions. And then, so really what I've seen over the years, um, I guess with regards to what makes the, the best bicycle chain lubricant, aside from we want to see that it is a fast lubricant to begin with, is you know the big one is what happens once you start cycling outside. So does it resist uh, picking up a lot of contamination? Um, and what does it do with the contamination that it, that it does collect? So uh, you'll see on just about every bottle of lubricant out on the market, um, pretty much the most common claims that you'll see are that it you know, repels dust, dirt and grime and that it cleans as it lubricates. And the reality is that very, very few lubricants remotely uh, meet those claims. And 
what we tend to see is that the, the chain lubricants that are testing the best, so that the ones that in my particular wear correlation test, which get, they get put through some pretty harsh contamination blocks, that, that clearly the, the ones that come through are the ones that resist contamination getting into and being mixed as part of the lubricant, as opposed to allowing that uh, contamination to adhere to the lubricant and then ha- trying to have some form of, of dealing with or getting rid of the contamination. That approach just never really works. And, um, and we do see a number of lubricants released that sort of claim that they, they can deal with that, have cleaning agents in them and so on, but in reality haven't ever seen that approach work very well. Um, uh, so, yeah, so definitely what makes a, a great chain lubricant, apart from its outright efficiency, is one that's going to stay uh, very efficient when you move it out of the lab and start riding it outside, especially if you're riding, you know, gravel, off-road, um, you know, mountain bike, you know, constantly wet riding, so on. Um, there can be just massive differences in wear rates between the top and the worst. And Dave, if I can jump in real quick on that, is is how important both components are, the, the initial efficiency testing and, and exactly what Adam was talking about. Um, when we originally did the efficiency testing, uh, I think it's the, the kind of golden Bellow News test from maybe 2014, 2015, where we tested 25 lubricants for efficiency right out of the gate and then added another 25 six months later. So I think this this might have 50 or 60 lubricants on it now, uh, in addition to all the other, um, say, ceramic speed and Adam's information out there. But what we found was for some of the faster lubes, Again, without contamination and wear, um, there were there were fast dry loops. There were very fast liquid loops. Now, to go off of what Adam just said is these liquid loops might not stay fast very long because of the, the potential to attract grit and contaminants and so forth. But on the other side of the spectrum, there were also on the out of the gate efficiency tests. There were also dry loops, which tested very poorly from efficiency standpoint. And this is where uh, one would caution and say, hey, um, this is a dry loop. So maybe through Adam's testing, uh, it might not pick up too much grit and contamination. Yet right out of the gate, it was never fast because one of the reasons it was really dry was because it really didn't have um, much lubricity, um, you know, uh, characteristics in it and and that's where it's a um, it's coming around the beginning it's a combination of getting a good efficient lube from the get-go which then with adam's work doesn't pick up contaminants and increase the friction over the duration of a run so it's, it's really they're both very important components when you look at the overall uh you know um, pros and cons of a bicycle chain lubricant so I guess on on that theme, then, then uh, what characteristics do bad lubricants have in common? Mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's pretty much I'll, um, I'll make, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 one. I think uh, I would like to be probably cheeky and say really powerful marketing is is probably the first um, that we tend to notice. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, there, there's a mix. Like, like as Jason was saying, so you can see really poor dry lubricants and, and in fact some of the worst wear rates that um they would see sort of coming through the workshop uh would be customers that have chosen your, your stereotypical what i would sort of call your older school you know traditional dry lubricants so 
uh, a number of brands have, you know, a, a particular one. And as Jason says, they just they have so little actual um, lubricant per volume. They're, they're probably 90% carrier, about 10% lubricant. And so whilst they look clean uh, because that carrier evaporates off, that, that beauty is really sort of skin deep and there's just really no actual lubrication happening inside. And unless you're sort of putting half a bottle on for a 50K ride, it, it's just not great. And, and that, you know, those results show up very quickly in my testing. And then secondly, really, is, is a lot of um, wet lubricants uh, struggle simply because of the contamination gathering aspects. So, um, and yeah, there's, there's probably, the, I mean, not probably, there will be a lot more high-performing wet lubricants out there than what I've been able to test and recommend at this time, just just simply through volumes. I haven't been able to test that many uh, wet lubricants um, to date. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the worst ones do, you know, the, the, what they have in common is they just attract contamination very quickly and really have no mechanism of dealing with that. So your what's running on your chain is basically a grinding paste masquerading as your chain lubricant and... Um, that what what I, I guess is um, fairly interesting because I'm I guess it's different for me because a sort of nerdy cyclist hyper focused in this area. What what will seem obvious to I guess to myself is is not so much to your your, your normal cyclist um, is that a lot of cyclists just accept that what's happening you know in that regard is normal. They just expect that they apply the lubricant, it goes black and messy. And somewhere between, say, typically 3,000 and 5,000 Ks, they need to replace their chain and possibly their cassette. And next time around, it might be chain rings as well. And that that's normal. Uh, that's just sort of how it is. And the reality is, and a big part of what, um, you know, the work that I'm doing is to try to educate that, you know, really that's that's not normal. There's a, I think, what was that? Was it Metamucil that had the ad that there's a better kind of normal? <laughs> um, there's just, you know, the, the, the top lubricants really... Uh, just you know, deliver so much, you know, or such vastly greater lifespans to your chains and components that you know it it's, it just makes a huge difference in your cost to run, and they're so much easier to maintain because they remain so much cleaner. And a lot of them, especially a lot of the latest generation chain coating lubricants, you don't even really need solvents at all to to maintain them. So, uh, trying to to educate and cut down solvent use and degreaser use to maintain um, drivetrains and chains throughout millions of households around the world is is a is a big focus now as well so and that, that's been helped a lot by a lot of the, the manufacturers that have stepped into the lubricant space over the last pretty much sort of 18 months two years a number of those have really brought out some outstanding products which have sort of made that goal um much much you know easier so with the options that we have now there's really no excuse for this sort of black mess you know high friction high wear drivetrain the, the products are out there that are tested and proven that um, that will deliver you a fantastically clean and very long-lasting drivetrain, whether you ride road, gravel, off-road, mountain bike, um, constantly riding in the wet and so on. It's just a matter of trying to really educate, get that information out there because there's just there's so much, um, you know, I guess conflicting information and poor information from so many different sources that it's very, very difficult for the average cyclist to sort of try to cut through that and know who is telling them, the right information and who's marketing yeah so on that i guess you know that's that's why we're here so i guess let's let's go a little bit deeper on this topic uh, i wanted to ask jason with uh with friction uh, with friction facts uh the birth of friction facts i guess what existed before what got you into to testing chains and and testing chain lube efficiency 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I was once a racer in my younger days, and and I ran into the issues. I was buying uh, components. I wanted the the fastest parts for my bike. And uh, what would this have been? 2010, 2011. And I ran into all the marketing hype with relatively none or no at all um, data or testing behind it. And I have an engineering background, so that bothered the heck out of me. It, today's today's technology, even 10 years ago, why the heck aren't there some type of, of tests or data that accompany these claims? And I thought, yeah, it'd be really neat to, to build a test lab and be able to to provide information to cyclists so that they can make educated decisions. And it was one of these crazy ideas that I just kind of sloughed off at, at whatever. And it kept coming around to me and coming around to me. And one day I just pulled the trigger and said, I'm going to, I'm going to do some testing and I built some prototype equipment. And that was, that was one of the issues is um, this equipment that's used today and that friction facts uses, it's all um, proprietary. It's not, it's proprietary, but it's available. People know how it works now, 10 years later. Um, but back then it wasn't something that we could go to Honeywell or, or one of these industrial uh, equipment manufacturers and purchase off the shelf. So um, we had to uh, friction packs, figure out uh, what we wanted to test and how to build it. And we did some prototype equipment and found that there were a lot of variations with say, pulley wheels and chain lubes and bearings and back then we we tested every part of the drivetrain um and what we did was uh, we operated on kind of the consumer reports style business model where friction facts uh purchased everything outright that it tested and the revenue stream came from sale of reports i think there were 14 dollars and 95 cents for 15 or 20 different reports on uh, everything that was available so to answer your question, it was because there was lack of data and lack of labs and what existed. I think that's another question you had was prior to friction facts, there were, um, I think, one or two university studies that were done on drivetrain efficiency um, with older equipment that didn't have the precision um, to really tell us what we needed. Uh, one of these papers that's commonly referenced or it used to anyways by a guy named Spicer. And I got to give him credit because he he did one of the first tests. But one of his results was he claimed that lubricant doesn't affect efficiency, meaning you could put oh. grease or thin oil or something on it. And, <laughs> and, it, and yeah, there's your red flag, right? Now, now we know. Yeah. But again, back then, this was done in 2000, this test I'm referencing it. And back then, there was no way to, to disprove that because that was... Um, I think the only test at the time that ever been done on bicycle drivetrain efficiency. So, um, so that that's what existed before. And then with friction facts, um, we not only developed the equipment to test, but we also learned a lot about the lubricant itself and how it acts within a chain, and really how differently a lubricant can act within a chain. Because say, for the past 100, 200 years. Lubricants were mostly designed around bearings, um, you know, industrial applications that were sealed systems, automobile engines, and so forth. And with a, a bicycle, you have a reciproc. Each link is reciprocating, and it's an exposed system, and it's it's completely different than a lot of the applications in an industry that that oils are designed for. 
Um, so I could keep talking on that, but I'll stop yeah, right now. Uh, I, I was I was keen to to understand, I guess, what what you ended up settling on for your the method you ended up settling on to test the chain efficiency, and I guess some mm-hmm. of the lessons you learned along that way. Yeah, exactly. Um, for chain efficiency testing, we use two methods. One's called we refer to as the FLT, which stands for full load test. And the other is FTT, which stands for the full tension test. Um, the full load test is, is relatively simple. Um, we, we put torque sensors. It, it, the tester represents a bicycle drivetrain. And we put a torque sensor on the axle of the drive side. That would represent the rider power. And that power is measured. And there's also a load sensor, a torque sensor, on the load side, which where the rear wheel would be. So that's that's how much resistance is is being given by the rear wheel. In this case, uh, we use load generator. So you have drive power in and load power out, and the delta is what the drivetrain consumes. So very simple. Um, the problem that we learned with that is that it was not very precise, and I've often referred to it as trying to measure a grain of sand with a bathroom scale, because we're looking at these. These uh, uh, really trying to find these precise wattage numbers, these deltas between different lubricants. And with this big setup that's putting full rider equivalent power into it, it's very difficult. And where that comes from is we had to use sensors where the full scale was the load, the rider load, rotational load going into the drive shaft. And I'll use, for example, uh, let's say we're putting 250 watts of rotational power into the drive. So that sensor was there in the full scale of that sensor, say 250 watts. Now, these sensors use a plus or minus um, accuracy, more plus or minus precision. And let's say of a sensor, it's 1%. So at 250 watts input, that's plus or minus 2.5 watts for a total swing of 5 watts of precision. And I call that imprecision, right? So now, so now we're trying to measure differences, small differences in this drivetrain, whether it be by lubricants or cross-chaining or pulleys or whatever you're trying to measure. But we've got a a five-watt swing, which just wasn't cutting it. The original papers that were done by the universities used this type of equipment, and that was one of the the downsides. They couldn't really detect differences in a lubricant. So their conclusion, unfortunately, was that lubricants don't make a difference. So... What we did was we we realized that this type of equipment just wasn't going to cut it for the precision that we needed to do this type of testing. So we um, invented what's called the full tension tester. And we at this point knew that what created friction inside each individual link. It's, it's really the tension in that link times the amount of articulation, the amount of bends as it's going around the ringer of the cog, uh, plus times the rate of articulation. So in taking that, we were able to take a, a, essentially a front ring and a rear cog and put tension on, symmetrical tension. So in that chain, we created tension, which is what the chain sees in a normal drivetrain. However, we did not have a rider, like a, a load on it, a, a torque. So when we put sensors on this, when this chain was under tension, the only friction, when we spun that front ring, the only friction that was that we needed to measure was the friction in that chain um, that, that was being created as the chain spans were under tension. 
Now the secret of it was, was we could now use a sensor that say in this case had a 15 watt full scale output or reading and the same plus or minus 1% at a 15 watt sensor put us at 0.15 plus or minus 0.15%. So now in that example, we could get down to a 0.3 watt swing rather than a five watt swing and still be able, and it still has tension in the chain and the fundamental mechanics of what creates friction within the chain were all still there and we could get a lot higher precision out of it. Okay. Sorry if that was long-winded, but I had to get that out. No, no. And, <laughs> and what, 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 what sort of accuracy is um, friction facts settled on now, like under, under ceramic speed? What, you know, yeah, how yeah. accurate um, are you able to get? I, I use an ex- yeah, I use an example of um, plus or minus 1%, but the sensors that we're using, uh, they're super expensive Honeywell sensors, and the, the plus or minus on them is 0.05%. Um, and what that comes down to is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty significant. So we're at a um, plus or better than a plus or minus 50th of a watt. So 0. Uh, hmm. 0.02 watts is the precision we're able to get out of the FTT right now. So it can tell the difference between a light oil and a grease. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. um, and then I guess... While while we're on this topic, while we're while we're talking about it, um, there there are issues with with those machines and and how they run. And I guess you you use two machines in in unison these days. Is mm-hmm. is that something you can talk about? Yes. So the good the upside of the FTT is the precision. Um, one of the drawbacks of the tension tester is with certain lubricants uh, because the chains are tensed the whole time. Um, it can provide erroneous results if the test is run more than, uh, say, 30 seconds to a minute. And it depends on the type of lubricant. What, we've, what we know is, um, I'll tell you how I found that out, is because just when certain lubricants are run under full tension, all of a sudden the, the friction really starts going up. And this was discovered accidentally when the tension was released and the, the drawbar put back down the friction would drop instantly and then it would slowly climb again. So what we learned was that on the full tension tester, chains need to what we call relax. And in a normal drivetrain, they do this automatically as the chain goes through the bottom uh, three spans through the derailleur pulleys. Because the tension is lower through there, the, the chain relaxes, refreshes, the lubricant refreshes for its trip around the top span. And when we, when we test now, we will do long-term testing, by long-term, more than 30 seconds or a minute, on the FLT. So that represents the full drivetrain. So we'll put a chain on that, run it for whatever the test protocol might, might be called out, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. So we'll run it on there, get its endurance in, um, and then take that and put it on the FTT, approximately 20 to it it depends but um 20 to 30 seconds get the reading and then put it back on the flt for more endurance so so we we swap back and forth so that gets the the real life drivetrain endurance in a very precise um quick test and gets it back on the endurance machine the flt gotcha okay we'll come back to that in in a little bit but uh 
Adam, uh, your testing's quite a bit different. Um, can you explain the process you settled on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and this uh, will sort of lead into why I'm, I guess, overall super pumped that we're having this chat today because <laughs> I guess broadly we've gone from sort of what, what led Jason to start Friction Facts in that there was no testing. Uh, we're now finding ourselves in a situation where we have a number of uh, different bodies conducting this type of testing, but conducting this testing in a, I guess, under a different protocol and a different manner, and therefore getting completely different results. And without an overarching, uh, I guess, you know, agreed upon protocol uh, to, I guess, to try to, you know, mimic exactly what Jason's uh, or the friction facts testing uh, was producing, yeah, absolutely everything has to be the same. So, you know, from what load, the cadence, uh, the ambient and temperature and humidity, because that will affect both the instruments and also the lubricants, um, and you know a whole bunch of other things. So even down to obviously the, the equipment being used. If everything is not exactly the same, then you know another you know lab starting to do efficiency testing, they're going to produce a different result. Now, I guess one could argue which result is going to be. Uh, a correct result or not a correct result but things will be i guess you know would, if one lab opens up and is starting to produce a different result where for lubricant x under friction facts it says it's five watts but this lab says it's six watts or this lab says that it's three watts um that starts to i guess muddy the waters a bit with regards to you know what what's the actual correct result and so you know really aside from the i guess the cost of the um uh, the equipment that, that Jason was using and so on. It, it's very very difficult, I guess, to to make that type of investment uh, in equipment and time to you know to test like that uh, and until or unless there is a, an actual agreed upon protocol um, for that testing. And so uh, that was one of the reasons why I went down a wear correlation path. So my my testing uh, is is linking the performance of the lubricant to how fast the chain is wearing. Um, and the wear correlation path, I guess, enabled me to sort of run tests for, you know, really thousands of kilometres with alternating sort of clean blocks, so no contamination blocks, and then dry contamination and wet contamination, and really get a very big picture of the lubricant's performance with regards to how does it how does it go across that entire spectrum. And there's a big, you know, obviously very clear link between that because you know, we we see that obviously throughout the testing, yeah, you know, we start to add contamination and the wear rates shoot up stop adding contamination depending on the lubricant it will either drop fairly sharply not drop at all if the lubricant's not dealing with clearing out the contamination um and you know so we, we get a very good picture of the overall lubricant's performance but uh, what we don't get is an efficiency loss number so it's a fairly i guess blunt instrument in that regard so it's being run basically on a bicycle drivetrain you know so it's basically being run on an actual bicycle uh on a smart trainer um, you know, driven by an industrial uh, motor and gearbox. So my, my test has a plus minus variance of uh, pretty well staying within the 5% range. So, um, you know, when we, we've done many tests over and over and over uh, for say same lubricant or same chain and we'll get, you know, the, it'll reach the wear rate limit, um, you know, on that you know, particular test within basically a total of a 10% variance. So if it, if it you know, reaches 2,500 kilometers in one test, it might reach 2,350 kilometers in the next test or 2,600 kilometers in you know, the next test. So that, that's sort of the accuracy range 
um, with my wear correlation testing. And then, but um, so yeah, the really, I guess, fun part sort of leading into uh, this super cool, cool conversation is that I guess since the, you know, friction facts days, since, since that ability to have an outright efficiency result, which is that that's a result that a lot of lubricant manufacturers really want to have. They want that, they just want that nice, clear number that this lubricant is you know, faster than all these other lubricants. And so, Obviously, um, Ceramic Speed that bought out uh, Friction Facts, so they've continued on with Jason's um, FTT and FLT test protocol, and that's a protocol that, and, you know, and as sort of Jason knows, I've been had been discussing testing with Jason quite extensively way back in the Friction Facts days because obviously a bit of a nerdy cyclist guy. I was, I was interested in it right from the start, and then when I was looking to start zero friction cycling and, and looking at uh, doing a wear. Um, correlation protocol as opposed to that outright efficiency testing and so you know I guess really have have had a pretty uh, pretty big in-depth you know look at exactly you know how the friction facts testing you know why Jason tested the way that he tests uh, and then that's carried over to ceramic speed and so you know from my side I have a basically I guess 100% confidence and faith in that uh, testing protocol and in the test results that uh, are done by the Ceramic Speed Denmark lab. And so I actually have been, I guess, liaising with Ceramic Speed Denmark for a long time now. And, and they're pretty much my go-to point to get outright efficiency results for lubricants that I'm testing so that I can get that number to go along with my, you know, wear correlation results. So I can, it's like, here's its outright efficiency. Uh, yes, it does or does not have initial penetration issues. Here's how it goes in, you know, when it's exposed to dry contamination. Here's how it goes when it, when you ride it in wet conditions and, and and really get that full picture. And so, but since really Ceramic Speed are the only, I guess, you know, had been the only body for a long time that had the ability to provide or to conduct outright efficiency testing with great accuracy, what we've really seen since then, and, and really the yeah the main reason for for this uh, super fun chat today is that we've seen a number of you know, other, either other manufacturers and so on, I guess step into having a crack at providing you know testing to provide um, an outright efficiency um, you know test so that they can prove that their lubricant is the fastest, and because there's no overarching um, you know I guess controlling standard. Uh, the, the tests have been conducted differently, different machines, different protocols, and some of those we can sort of look at and, and straight up be pretty concerned about, you know, how that protocol was run because we can think that that's got some pretty obvious, or, or you know, or to us some some pretty obvious flaws into into how the protocol was run, which leads to an erroneous result. But you know what we get for a lot of cyclists, they're just going to see um, X manufacturer, then Y manufacturer, then Z manufacturer coming out with testing, proving that their lubricant is the fastest lubricant and showing a lot of competitor lubricants to be, uh, slower. And the results completely conflict with, you know, other efficiency testing going out there. So I got, uh, just, I guess before sort of this call, so I sort of compiled just a, a little bit of, um, sort of test data for, from some different places on, I'll use Squirt because Squirt was one of the, I think right from back in the Friction Facts days, that was like it's pretty much sort of known as the, the sort of the fastest uh, drip lube at the time. And so, you know, sort of Friction Facts had discovered that, you know, like obviously paraffin wax and then which led to the UFO formula and, and molten speed wax and so on to be the, the outright sort of fastest. But for a drip on lube, then you had, your, you know, the Squirt was the queer, uh, clear leader. And so... Uh, we've got so the latest results. So um, 
for Squirt uh, from the Ceramic Speed Test Lab, they have that at 4.04 watts. Um, from Muckoff's test machine that um, they had for their NanoChain launch, they tested Squirt and found it to be 8.53 watts. Um, Wheel Energy, which is an independent uh, efficiency test lab, so they tested Squirt uh, for absolute black as part of their graphene launch. They had it initially at 7.1 watts. It fairly quickly trended down to 5.6 watts and then quite quickly trended up to finish at 10.1 watts. And then uh, Allied, which uh, outsourced their uh, sort of development of Grax and testing of, uh, of Grax and competitive lubricants, they basically had that. Uh, their testing was really different, which is something we could sort of, yeah, we could go into if we wanted to, but um, they used, yeah, it seemed like an overall drivetrain uh, thing, but they basically had um, uh, Squirt at a 28-watt uh, loss versus Grax at 22 watts. So that, that's obviously encompassing a whole bunch more uh, components adding in in loss there, but basically a six watts higher loss than uh, than Grax, which um, is is going to basically have a, a loss result itself of you know sort of somewhere in the five odd watt range. So, and, you know, and yeah, that's that's massive. And I guess um, just as important as those raw numbers is like the the placing, the respective placing, and the I guess the comparative placing against the competitor set also changes greatly, right? Amongst those lists? Yeah, I mean, with these days, uh, really, and especially when we've got, say, like with the Ceramic Speed Lab, where you've got such accurate testing, uh, really, say, probably the top 15 lubricants are covered within like a one watt range. Um, and so, mm. and, you know, with some of this testing as well, so when we look at, say, I guess another lubricant that is um, used or benchmarked quite a lot, obviously, is the UFO Drip. So there's, some, uh, there's a lot of testing done for the UFO Drip V1. And you know some of the the lost results that that have come out from some of the you know the the test labs that are you know sort of trying to benchmark their lubricant against their main competitors and prove that they're the best. You know, really, really, you look at the results and you wonder. You know, so sort of intuitively, you know, so we've got so with Markov, it, it increased from four watts to fourteen watts across their four-hour test, so a ten-watt increase. So, so you know, intuitively, you sort of think, okay, a, a lubricant. In a being tested in the clean lab, how is it going to increase in you know by ten watts in a four hour period? I mean, really, you'd you'd, you'd have to be heading out and doing a full motor cyclocross race to get that kind of increase in a, in a change friction. And yeah, you know, I guess you know backing the concerns with such you know huge variances or or you know reported numbers is that you know so when I do a, a test of the same lubricant over that same period, I've got zero wear of the chain in that time like 0.00 so where is is all that loss coming from if it's not leading to uh you know wear of the chain because you're not going to get a 10 watt increase in friction coming from you know stiction or viscous friction and and so on so it those losses have to be coming from somewhere and then that and in this case you know that could really be explained by the fact that it was just really run for four hours straight on an ftt machine uh and the issue that, that jason explained before and then we had with um, sort of wheel energy, they tested uh, and they had a similar sort of increase, but they test they ran the test for 550 kilometers, whereas the UFO Drip V1 had a lifespan of 200 kilometers. So that's kind of testing it well outside of its um, of its you know test brief. And then the Allied with the Grax, so they basically had UFO uh, compared to Grax at 26 watts higher, um, the, you know 26 watts higher in just 1.4 hours. 
So again, you sort of think, okay, what could possibly occur with a lubricant that is going to increase by 26 watts in a clean lab in 1.4 hours time? And so, yeah, this broader discussion about, you know, so what we have now is a, is a number of players really stepping into uh, outright efficiency testing, but we're getting test results that are, you know, really you know, massively variant and absolutely all over the shop. And in some cases just do not align with even the, the most sort of basic intuitive logic on, on what could be occurring. And that does not make the waters clearer. No, no. Uh, so I guess that topic of, you know, we're seeing what these 20 watt differences from some tests. Uh, I'm keen to hear from Jason as to, I guess, you know, some of this might be speculation, but why do you believe that, that these, uh, testing, these tests are showing such massive variances? Where do you think they're going wrong? Yeah, well, um, a lot of it's equipment and um, another factor is how the test is run itself. And another factor is we don't know. Um, yeah. You know, it goes back to the con- – <laughs> and, and that, that's a very important one. <laughs> what I mean is um, Adam mentioned the test lab and um, there's some manufacturers that have published a lot of results. And I'm always interested in, okay – yeah, I see these these variances, and another another thing that that Adam's aware of, and we've talked about in the past, and he didn't mention is not just these outright variances, but when you look at these graphs over time, there's some labs that are putting out numbers that that look like the Andes Mountains, up and down every half hour, you know, doubling, tripling. Um, we're not just talking moderate fluctuations over time, and it, it's just interesting because over. Over the years that we've been doing testing, um, lubricants do not shoot up and down that quickly. They have gradual declines, um, gradual increases, um, and and to see some of this data that is all over the place during a duration of a, a test just you know, makes me cringe. And, and what the heck are they doing? So that leads me to okay, well, this might be an independent test lab or a university lab, let's see what they're doing. And the first red flag in my mind is that there's no disclosure, no transparency of, of the type of test equipment they're using or the protocol. Um, one independent lab, um, they go on their test protocol tab, and there's eight different test protocols for different equipment they use. And not one of those under the tab is for chain lubricant testing. Meanwhile, this is a lab that has released a lot of results, and then the manufacturer takes these results and tells them. So, a lot of we we don't even know, um, and and that's scary for an independent lab not to disclose at least the type of equipment, the type of sensors, uh, protocol. Is that lab best known for their wheel testing and their tire uh, testing? Possibly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so to give some background on that one, I was looking into doing an article about this topic uh, many months ago, and this this lab, um, their response to you know asking for some insight into uh, into their equipment. Oh, let me backstep. So I asked I asked Jason um, for some insight into his testing protocol. I got a novel in return. It's I think it was seven eight thousand words maybe. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> similar word count from Adam, and then uh, from this. Um, European-based tire testing lab um, who have gotten into chain lube. Um, I got a response of somewhere along the lines of uh, our, our testing uh, equipment and methods are secret. Hmm. 
So red flag. Uh, but yeah, anyway, back to you, Jason. <laughs> okay. So and, and that just shouldn't be. And and that and that should be from a consumer a, a big red flag. But unfortunately they might not dive and take that next step of, hey, where did this manufacturer get this information? What lab are they using? Then another um, issue that we've seen in the past is there um, there's at least one manufacturer that I'm aware of that that does have correct equipment. Um, it is precise. I provided my schematics to them and helped them build it. Um, so I'm, I'm fairly confident in the, the equipment itself. However, um, the test itself wasn't run properly in one case that I can think of. So uh, specifically on the FTT tension tester, chains weren't allowed to relax. And um, when that test is run incorrectly, you get erroneous results. And, um, and we actually caught it in the data because when it, it went from maybe, I don't know, four watts up to 14, and then overnight they took the chain off, put it back on the next morning, and the chain magically dropped back down to four again, right? <laughs> like, okay, guys. Um, so, so there's an example of if the tests aren't, you might have great equipment, but the test might not work properly. properly. And the, the third thing that I see is um, I'll see labs that are trying to reproduce the FLT and FTT um, kind of functionality, but they're using electrical testing. And uh, we use purely mechanical torque transducers. It's, it's very simple, very precise, albeit uh, very expensive. Um, to do a full FTT and FLT setup, you have about $18,000 worth of sensors, plus the equipment itself, plus the, the A to D cards, and the strain gauge, everything else that goes along with it. You're running about forty dollars to $50,000 for a complete setup. Now, to do an electrical test, it might be $1,000 because you're... Um, what they're doing is they're measuring voltage and amperage going into the electric motor that's driving the test rig. So theoretically, that sounds good because um, you know, volts times amps gives you the power usage, and we talk in watts all the time, and watts is actually power. But what, and it, it seems to make sense, but what is really happening is they're measuring the power consumption from the motor, and a small component of that is the drivetrain. Uh, their the motors can be relatively inefficient and more importantly the, the efficiency of an electric motor can change drastically with temperature with the actual voltage that goes in and this is due to the eddy currents um, within the motor itself and for instance if if the room isn't kept at a constant temperature um, then the efficiency of the motor can change if the room's kept at a constant temperature however the core of that motor where the windings and the magnets reside if that isn't at a constant temperature, then the eddy currents change and the motor is drawing more power. And then, then you have added on the, um, the sensors themselves. You have two sensors, one measuring amperage and one measuring voltage. So how precise are those sensors? Then on the other end, for instance, on an FLT, uh, a lab I saw has exactly the same setup on the back, uh, which is electrical. So then you double um, the uh, the error, potential error, and plus or minus precision. So that's another thing is we see these labs trying to skirt the cost of the mechanical torque transducers by doing electrical. And on, again, on, on theory and on paper, oh, this makes sense. But in practice and reality, uh, the, the variables have to be held so constant that I'm skeptical 
that they actually can be held that constant for repeatability from test to test. And, and those electrical uh, transducers, that they give you a runaway results as well, don't they? If, if I guess, one lobe is, is slower, it causes more heat in the, mm-hmm. in the system. Is that, is that, can you explain that a little bit? Yep, exactly. So, so if, if, if a lubricant is slower, then the drivetrain takes more energy. And that's what actually somebody wants to measure. But then also the motor powering it requires more energy to power it so it gets hotter so then are you measuring the change in eddy currents within that motor due to the poor lubricant in addition to the poor lubricant so it can be compounded and, that, and that's just that's just one you know, you know, red flag that i have with the electrical style test methods so a lot of the tests we've spoken about, uh, I guess, revolve around running an actual bicycle chain, but there are some chain lube manufacturers that are, are putting a lot of weight onto testing that doesn't actually involve a chain, that they're, they're sort of running more, I guess, industry standard lubricant t- tests. Uh, Jason, can you give a bit of insight into what these, what these are and I guess yep. the issues with them? Yep, exactly. And these tests are excellent, excellent for industry standards. Um, say for a bearing, which is a sealed system, um, sometimes they're referred to as Timken, the four ball test, the pin on disc test. And what they're, what they're used for is to determine specifically the coefficient of friction of a lubricant um, with very specific circumstances. For instance, often the four ball test is run, it's, it's a circling, cir- circular disc rotating in submerged lubricant, nothing about a chain. And what people need to realize is that with the chain, it's, it's nothing like a traditional bearing or industrial setting. So the results from some of these ASTM, the ISO tests, don't have much, if any, relevance on how well that lubricant is going to perform on the chain. And a couple of things, just, just real quick, is some people don't realize that a chain, while it goes in a circle, the actual links never do a full rotation as opposed to say a bearing or you know, something in industry. They articulate back and forth. And another thing is um, we get stiction and viscous drag. Um, a, a bearing might do really well when it's packed with grease. We all know that bearings are packed with grease, but you put grease on a bicycle chain Worst thing you can ever do, not just for contaminant attraction, which uh, Adam's well aware of, but also because of the stiction and viscous drag. So to to cut myself off here, because I could talk for a while on this, in, in order, it's not just about the coefficient of friction of a lubricant, which is what these other tests will test for. It's more about how does that lubricant perform on a chain and the friction-producing mechanisms of a chain are drastically different than what we see in industry and what these ASTM tests will test for. Yeah, and I guess the type of lube also plays a big factor. Like some of these lubricants need to dry, and I guess putting them in a, mm-hmm. a bath of wet lubricant is not using them as intended, right? Yep, yep, exactly right. So you get the applications that are different and all. Like, for instance, um, I used to get a lot of, um, could UFO drip be put in a bearing? It, it, now let's talk about the reverse. UFO drip is very fast on chain. Would we put it in a bearing? No, because UFO drip is designed for efficiency on a chain. 
And when it comes to a bearing, there are much better options to keep it efficient and the longevity up there higher. And yeah, just to add to Jason's point there is that um, I have conducted a number of private tests for um, manufacturers. Uh, most of them are typically uh, in the automotive space that are looking to uh, possibly step into the bicycle chain uh, lubricant space. And they have a lubricant that has, you know, outstanding, um, say, you know, test, uh, test results from, say, like the Timken test. And they've been very surprised when, you know, I've run it through my test and as soon as the contamination is introduced uh, the lubricants perform very poorly and they've had a very poor wear result uh, so yeah I've seen it quite a number of times where you know exactly what Jason's saying where they, they have outstanding test results from a particular industry standard test uh, and then when it's tested um, you know on an actual bicycle chain on a bicycle drivetrain it's it's performed quite poorly so that's come up you know like you know, mm. quite a number of yep. times since I've been so, doing that just not not relevant no no and another thing real quick here is is what really used to irk me is the additives um it doesn't happen too much i haven't seen one recently but probably about three or four years ago there's this big kick on um the nanoparticles the diamond particles a few manufacturers were coming out saying hey um essentially the claim was this works great in an engine automobile reciprocating gasoline engine it's going to work great on your bike chain and it's going to be the fastest ever. And I remember one case in point where uh, we tested this product and it looked like mineral oil with very small, under 1% of, I think they were the diamond um, carbon particles. Cycle star gold. Mm-hmm. Oh, didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. They're didn't not hear from me. It came from Adams. I believe they're okay. bankrupt now anyway. Okay. I, th- I think... I don't. Their website's not going anywhere. So yeah, I love. I love oh, that God. Jason sitting in America is is very worried about libel laws, and and Adam's just all about the name and shame. If you guys had a camera, you could see my attorney yeah. sitting next to me, kicking me, saying, yeah. "Don't mention the don't mention the manufacturer's name." Okay, so, so, so I can't believe you knew no, what I was I, talking I, about right away. Adam. I, so, I checked recently to see if they were still going, but uh, no, I don't believe they are. So I think you're safe. So what happens, we tested it, and it was actually slower than mineral oil. So they they yeah. found a way um, to make mineral oil even slower by putting this additive in. But so there's this, there's this speculation that that if an additive is going to be good in industry or any information relevant to industry, it's going to be good on a bicycle chain. And And we've tested tons of additives. And there are certain additives um, that I can't disclose that are very good on a bicycle chain that would be, I know, terrible in industry, which you'd never want to use. Um, so, but it doesn't matter if, if it makes a bicycle chain faster and, and checks all the box for performance over time, we're going to use it bicycle chain. And, and, and that, that, that irks me a lot when, the claims are based on additives, but not testing because in industry, they might do well. Yeah, cool. Are there any other tests that you're familiar with that I guess take away from the, that are off the bike or out of a chain that you see that you're seeing being used that you, you'd be cautious of? Um, the four ball test, um, the pin on disc test is quite interesting. There's a couple of manufacturers that, that are doing that. And, um, they, my understanding is they're using a dry pin with lubricant coated 
on, excuse me, a, a disc, meaning it's not submerged. But one of the issues, and in this case, is where it's, it's a pin that's placed on a rotating disc, kind of like a, an old turntable from the 70s, spins around and digs this groove in. And that's, that's great for a pin on disc test, test, but again, it has no relevance on a bicycle chain because this is a constantly spinning groove. Um, of course, the first few rotations, that lubricant is, if especially a, a dry wax type lubricant, is going to wear away. Um, but that doesn't happen on the internals of a chain. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, there's some skeptical, uh, I'm skeptical of a lot of tests that are done that aren't relevant to a bicycle chain. Yeah, cool. Okay. And as Adam said, he's he's been able to prove that in the wear rates of the bicycle yeah. chain that don't add up. Yeah. And just very uh, like just as, a, as a broad picture, I guess on this, um, just sort of linking to this topic a bit. Um, I don't have any specific data or or can really sort of guess to a percentage, but my belief is that there's not really all of these bicycle manufacturing companies developing their own you know, bicycle chain specific lubricants. I believe that quite a majority of the products that we purchase are just literally rebottled, relabeled and remarketed products that are already existing from, you know, previously much larger industry uh, manufacturers and players. So, you know, there, there are huge companies that make, you know, lubricants for, you know, the chains that are on, say, conveyor belts, you know, for, you know, freight companies and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, door hinges and just every sort of general purpose type of lubricant that, that you can think of. So, you know, cycling overall is a is a pretty teeny tiny player in the world of, say, bearings and, and lubricants. And, you know, the the odds that we have all these companies out there doing all this development and testing to bring a bicycle-specific chain lubricant to market, I think extremely low. There are obviously, you know, companies that we can see quite clearly that, that have done exactly that, like your, obviously your ceramic speeds and your silkers and absolute black graphene and, you know, a number of others that have very specifically gone and done that. But a lot of what we're purchasing, um, just in general, from the hundreds of lubricants that we have to choose from, uh, I believe the majority of those are literally just a rebottled, rebranded uh, existing product from a much larger player and they're not bicycle chain specific at all. So, uh, and that's generally why they just don't really test great. Yeah, and that's true for you know a lot of these brands that you're referring to. That's true for the entire product range. You know, their their whole maintenance range is is often repurposed for for motorbikes or uh, for for automotive or you know as you say uh, industry. So it's it is something that um, yeah people should be aware of. But at the same time, I feel like the the awareness of the chain loop space is is growing now at such a rate that as you say the the newest loops on the market seem to be mm. specifically designed. Absolutely, I think this, the newest and greatest yeah, loops. Yeah, at this, least. this growing awareness, and I think you know the the cost of drivetrain components um, as you know, things are sort of stepped up a bit, sort of tech wise, and going to twelve speed and so on. That uh, that that's really been a great incentive for you know some manufacturers to you know I guess put that investment in uh, to you know develop a lubricant specifically for the space that is actually an outstanding lubricant for that specific use case, and that's why we've seen some. You know, manufacturers bring some truly great products to the market. You know, the options we have now, um, we just literally didn't have, you know, even sort of 18 months to two years ago, and these options are, are absolutely brilliant. So so that, that awareness of just how much difference that it does make, uh, both to friction and wear, has, you know, 
uh, that's been a fantastic sort of step forward in this space and yeah fun for nerds like me working in this space to, to see that happen so yeah yeah i guess that's that's a pretty good uh look at where we're sitting at the moment and i guess a pretty good indicator as to uh i guess places you can and can't trust i guess if you if you see a graph that has uh spikes up and down in its efficiency then that's a it's a pretty big red flag by the sounds of it would, would you both agree with that yeah oh, yes. absolutely and yeah okay and even even if it's sort of not necessarily um, spiking up and down, I think as a, as you know when I ran through the numbers before, if you see really large variances in the result from sort of the start to the finish, and it's a relatively short time, then you know just again intuitively you have to wonder like how could a lubricant you know have such massively increased efficiency losses in such a short period of time in a clean lab test. Um, and then especially if it's a lubricant that i've also tested if it doesn't have uh like if, if it's performed exceed extremely well in the in the wear rates especially in the clean blocks uh for the same period if it's basically doesn't really have any wear then again where where are those uh efficiency efficiency losses come from and um yeah and so i guess from from sort of my side really this uh this chat is that i guess we've sort of now got probably a bit of an idea as to where uh, things are sitting at the moment um, with more manufacturers stepping into this space either directly um, or they're outsourcing uh, this testing to third parties. Uh, but we're getting very conflicting results. And I guess from somebody who's sort of obviously in part of my role is I'm pretty passionate in a lot of the work I'm doing is I'm trying to improve the um, the information for cyclists out there so that they know what products they should probably look at choosing for their particular level of you know, or type of cycling uh, so that they can minimize their drivetrain wear. And the more information that we get that is, you know, really confusing and conflicting, it just muddies the waters instead of making them clearer. So really, I mean, basically, it, you know, if we're getting this, you know, sort of high level, you know, really fancy lab testing to show us how efficient lubricants are or are not, you know, intuitively that should be helping us that should give us clearer information on what lubricants are great and what are not but what we're seeing is the exact opposite that every new facility that starts putting or producing numbers the muddy the, the waters are getting muddier and muddier and i i think what we're seeing now is it is a trend that more and more manufacturers are sort of stepping into that space so um, my fear is that and you know unless there's an overarching you know agreed upon uh, agreed upon protocol that we're just going to continue to get more manufacturers you know releasing a product with marketing with you know outright efficiency test uh numbers which you know to to a normal cyclist reading the the marketing or even if there, there might be a white paper released to support the the testing and the numbers um they're just going to conflict uh yet again with a whole bunch of other testing and it just it's just going to keep adding to the confusion so the where to from here uh i really don't know um you know my concern and, and the reason why i was really hoping to get this sort of conversation started was I guess just to flag the issue to the I guess the broader cycling uh, public that that there is a, I guess a lot of sort of uh, cont can, you know, contention or contested um, uh, you know debate around these results um, but where we're going to are we ever going to get to a place where we actually haven't agreed upon protocol and equipment where you know anyone who's looking to get an outright efficiency test uh, result that you know this is how the test needs to be run and is there a place that actually offers that so 
it's something that you know I've, as Jason has I've discussed with him before um, you know with regards to sort of stepping into the outright efficiency testing space but yeah until there's that overarching agreement or protocol there'd just be no point to invest in you know that huge cost um, you know a- until there's that yeah, so that is agreed upon and that we go, okay, this is exactly how we test for chain lubricant efficiency. Yeah, on that, like uh, I think it's worth stating and this is a conversation I've had with Ceramic Speed recently where they, they've actually validated their their lab testing, their, their method. I believe they've done some track testing maybe back in, is it, would it be Denmark, Jason? Or? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so they've basically validated in in a in a velodrome, you know, under a real bike. That um, you know, they're basically able to replicate what the efficiency that they found in their lab versus what a rider can experience based on power output and speed. So I think that is quite telling as to you know the level that we're working at here, and and perhaps which test method does work. And I'm not so convinced that other other companies out there or other uh, test labs, independent test labs, have have been able to really validate their uh, what they test in the lab versus what they test outdoors, um, with the exception of you, Adam. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I think I think we've basically we've got two companies in in the world at the moment that have basically been able to validate what they've been able to uh, repeat within do- within within uh, controlled lab testing. So. Um, yeah, from from my point of view, that that's kind of what what leads me to to use the two people on this call as a as an ongoing resource for, um, yeah, a lot of my articles and a lot of the chain loop advice that we provide at Cycling Tips. That's that's why we trust you you both is that you basically have validated what you have mm-hmm. tested and what you've shown. So, um, yeah, and if I can interject, David, it's super important. You're you're the media, and you're neutral. And we're, we're on here today. This isn't sponsored by any means because we're Adam and I, Ceramic Speed and CFC are open and transparent. And as a neutral party, I think it's important that you can sift through some of this. You can reach out to other independent test labs. And this is where you just mentioned, it's a concern that even, even a, a new, it's not ceramic speed going to another lab saying, hey, open up your books. I want to see it. Or Adam, mm. it's a neutral party saying, hey, I'm trying to demuddy the waters, as Adam just mentioned. Can you mm. tell me a little bit about what you're doing? And when these labs either don't reply to you or say, oh, it's top secret, we, you know, that's, mm. um, I think, boy, I'm biased here, but there's there there's the sign right there even from a, yeah. a neutral party such as yourself saying okay i'm neutral uh, you know something something's a little fishy here and um that that would be a first step is that somebody neutral could collect information and you know get get some some decisions but um you know kind of sort through what's out there but unfortunately it sounds like these labs or universities for whatever reason aren't fully transparent um and i don't know why um you know with sharing with a neutral party yeah do either of you believe that there's hope for uh an agreed upon industry standard here or do you believe that maybe the barriers are too high for this that you know the the equipment that you're using at 
ceramic speed now, previously friction factor, is just too much of an investment to have everyone invest in. Uh, I, I think there's hope. I, from my side, like, yeah, I don't think we need, say, like an ATSM or ISO standard. I think we need, uh, I guess this is a, as a starting step, sufficient, I guess, industry heavyweights, uh, we'll call them, say, like your Jason Smith and your Josh Bortners, who I know is sort of his testing for developing the Silk Aligner products is very similar to uh, obviously what um, Jason pioneered and, and what Ceramic Speed use. And, uh, you know, they would obviously have, you know, networks to, to a whole bunch of other you know, industry heavyweights that would be able to sign off and say, okay, basically sort of what Jason pioneered there with the FTT, FLT, FLT protocol, this equipment, this process, this is what um, should be introduced as the agreed upon uh, standard for efficiency testing for bicycle chain lubricants. And yeah, if that was to happen, then, you know, I would make the investment in uh, the equipment and machines to step into the outright efficiency testing space, but definitely wouldn't be looking to invest that sort of money without that, uh, you know, overarching, uh, you know, yes, agreement or, or body in place to to say that. Um, and yeah, so I think there's hope, but it's it's going to take work um, by a bunch of really clever people high up in the industry um, to do those initial steps first. Uh, and yeah, in the interim, my I guess my fear, you know, without that or without those steps taking place, is that yeah, we're, we're probably going to be Constantly, or, or I'll be sort of going around in circles a little bit with with my sort of latest news updates and um, sort of starting into YouTube videos as well. Now is to I'll be explaining you know yet again why a particular test I have great concerns about you know with the results that they've produced due to you know X, Y, and Z, uh, and it's just going to be a, a little bit of a I guess a ongoing, hopefully not never-ending battle to try to you know to keep educating people as to what results they can probably put there their stock in or their faith in and what results, you know, really obviously raise some some pretty big concerns. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where it, where it all does go from here. But it's great from my side to see that, you know, like as Jason said, you know, yourself being in the media uh, to, I guess, get the conversation started um, with regards to this particular topic because, yeah, it's a, it's from, it's a bowl of spaghetti yep. at the moment and um, <laughs> I'd like to see it move forwards. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's I think it's worth giving you guys kudos for when when I first started really paying attention to chain loops, Jason Smith was obviously in the space talking about efficiency. But wasn't, you know, he was doing a little bit in terms of real world conditions, how grit plays a role and stuff, but it wasn't really um being done in detail because that's that's just a whole another level of time consuming that you know if you're already running t- uh, efficiency testing you probably don't have time to then do wear correlation as well so uh and i i sort of you know i was i was stumbling across lubes and finding you know, something like squirt to be really good and finding other you know other lubes to cause significant drivetrain wear noise friction all that what's really cool to see is since i guess jason sort of came to prominence and more recently adam you have just in the last two years, there's been a complete shift in in the chain loop market. There's there's all new players, there's all new favorites, uh, and and basically what's considered to be a great lube now has, I believe, has completely changed. And what we consider to be good lubes are now a dime a dozen. You know, like they used to be. Squirt used to stand head and shoulders above so many other products, and now that product has been replicated over and over again. And uh, it's just quite cool to see that. I believe that, that that's the influence of, of both of you that's kind of led to that. And I think it's 
we're still at a point where there's, you know, muddied waters, as you say, and there's a lot of confusion and a lot of brands making big claims. Um, but I think we're on a pretty cool path for what's going to end in the consumer just having better product, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And what's so, been well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and from my side, I guess, yeah, I had initially sort of, I guess, a, a bit of a, a sort of a two phase plan for zero friction cycling. Sort of phase one was for me to test and find out obviously what the zero friction cycling retail side should stock and what I should avoid. Um, and then over time, as, as that my testing sort of became known, um, you know, phase two would be, would manufacturers start to use the zero friction cycling testing to help validate uh, their product um, either during development or to sort of help back up what testing results they've conducted either through field testing and or tribology testing that they've used. Um, and that's, that's really been uh, going extremely well. So you know, we've had a lot of the major manufacturers that have used zero friction cycling um, wear correlation testing to back their product's performance. And so that they do get an independent, you know, test facility that, you know, obviously provides a, a whole lot of data to say, look, you know, this product, it, it just like exhibits extremely low wear rates, even in some pretty harsh conditions, it's, it's an outstanding product. Uh, so yeah, having having that side, so that side of the business is now very very busy. Where uh, you know, I've got I've now got three machines instead of one, and, and booked out well into twenty twenty two doing testing for a lot of sort of fairly large manufacturers, and some of them really are actually, you know, they're coming from a different uh, demographic. So some of them are sort of more from an automotive or industry demographic that are stepping into the cycling demographic uh, in in part that you know now they can. I guess get some actual independent data that they can depend on to prove that their product is is you know really a top shelf product. So uh, you know we're, whereas without that, there's you know it is pretty tough because you're going to be one of you know umpteen hundred lubricants all claiming the same thing. And if you don't have something tangible to back that, and especially I guess really something independent and tangible to back that, then it's, it's you know you've got to wonder if you're going to wade into this pretty crowded marketplace just claiming exact same stuff that everybody else is claiming so yeah so that that i guess phase two to see that that um i guess sort of hope for part has really sort of come through um a lot has been great and now the options that we have that i guess the yeah the the proven top options that uh, people can sort of you know all that that data is free and open they can go to the zero friction cycling website to the lubricant test page and they can see the test results for the top lubricants and make a decision you know whether they you know, want a chain coating lubricant or a wet lubricant, they know some absolutely proven top options as to what they should probably have a look at versus their random choice or whatever their local bike store happened to stock. Um, so yeah, driving that side has been a lot of fun, um, but it also is becoming a bit of a battle still um, now, you know, with with a lot of this conflicting information coming out that, that does confuse the heck out of people. And and I do get a lot of emails with obviously from customers or, or you know perspective, you know customers or cyclists just saying I don't I should I buy a UFO because UFO claim or ceramic speed claim it's you know now the latest version is two point eight watts but this report says it's fourteen watts and this report says it's twenty six watts, um, you know I've got a really important race can I put my faith in that product and um, and it shouldn't be like that for cyclists um, trying to decide what product they should buy so. Yeah, things are getting getting pretty messy on that side. So, uh, just to, to mention something also to add to Adam is Dave going back to what you said is just look in the last 
five, six years, the way the uh, market offerings have changed. I don't look at this as two steps forward, one step back. I look at it as we took five steps forward. We might have taken one step back in the industry itself. What we've learned with that five step forward is that, you know, the, the, the huge advantages of some of the dryer loops and, and how fast they can be. Adam mentioned early on, and I'm biased. I'm biased. I work for ceramic speed and I hope my supervisors are listening, but um, we're, there's a fair amount of lubricants that are, that are bunched up pretty close. And this is with our testing from our webpage um, that, that we release. We're not saying, hey, you know, let's just artificially tack on a couple watts to our nearest competitors. So so we've now got this, what we learned with these five step forwards and our, our competitors have also learned also, now we're taking the, the one step back and you got some, some questionable lubricants coming in that some are good, some are not. They're using this similar techniques and buzzwords, but just can't get it right, for instance, and using bad data. So even with this one step back, the industry and the consumers regarding bicycle lube have just learned so much in the, in the past, let's say, six to eight years. I don't think that that will change. And unless you know something kind of revolutionary comes out in the near future that totally wipes out you know, kind of the wax base dry, very generally speaking, what we've learned. I think that's here to stay at least for a little while, maybe a lot longer. And now it's just let's keep moving forward with with the, the products that are coming in with these claims of what we learned but aren't really performing. Yeah, let's let's get that moving forward again with everything that Adam just mentioned with um, you know potential simpler protocols and standards and test equipment if if we'd be able to do that. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on and for uh, yeah, giving us a, a little bit of an insight yeah. into this this murky world of chain lube testing. It's uh, it's certainly. You know, I, I guess we're uh, somewhere along the road at the moment. There's there's uh, a lot of road ahead here, though. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's definitely a, a topic we uh, will be continuing to cover. Thank you, Dave. All right, hey, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. That's a wrap on this week's deep dive nerd alert. Obviously, there's plenty of money to be made in selling chain lubes, and hopefully, this conversation has armed you with some valuable knowledge and assist in getting more of the industry on the same track as each other. As always, I'd like to give a special thank you to all of our Velo Club members. This podcast and much of the content we create simply wouldn't be possible without your support. I'm still in a Sydney lockdown, but I'm giving out virtual high fives to all who join Velo Club. Tune in next week. We'll be back with the regular group. Cheers. Cheers.